My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. It's a pleasure to have you all here with me as we continue on through the book of Romans. We are almost done, people. If things go the way I'm planning, then it'll be this week currently and then a week after. And then after that, we'll be in the book of Genesis. So I'm highly looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to finishing up Romans. I've had a lot of fun, you know, getting back into this book, rediscovering some things, learning some new things along the way. It's been a lot of fun. I hope it's been the same for you. Hey, sure, just let me know at letnothingmoveyoupodcast.gmail.com if there's anything that has been on your mind, if there's anything you feel like I got wrong, you really want to discuss, like I'm open to it. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for continuing to share. I noticed we got some new viewers around there, uh, around the United States. So I'm really looking forward to see what you guys think. So we'll be going today into Romans 13 and 14. We start, of course, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now we've got to talk about these verses here real quick. Because you will often see these specific verses being used and abused by people into forcing their congregations to blindly follow their government or to say it was unrighteous for Christians to act against the actions of another nation's government, this is patently false. Paul here is referring to the idealized state of government and the idealized rulers who do their jobs in favor of the people under their command and control for the good of all, and who, by doing their jobs well, are following God, even if they themselves have no knowledge or relationship with him. This simply means that if a ruler is doing to God, like God appointed them, like every single ruler who has ever existed on this earth, bar none, God has raised them all up. That is incontrovertible. That does not mean every one of those rulers has God's approval for their actions and what they do. So how do we, how do we reconcile those two things? Like there are so many terrible people out there who have used the, their ability to rule over others and caused harm. Well, God raised that person up? Does this mean God approves of what they're saying? No, it doesn't. It just means he appointed them so that his glory could be made known in the world. And there are plenty of examples of faithful believers in Scripture who resist evil rulers in government. I mean, the entire Bible has plenty of places we can look to. I've selected four. 
that we can go to. First, we're going to be going into Exodus 1, uh, 17 through 22. We're going to be in the NLT for this one. And that says, but because the midwives, these being the midwives who were keeping the babies, uh, the Hebrew babies alive in the book of Exodus, but because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. In the context, for those of you who haven't read your Exodus or know nothing about it, this is when Israelites are living in slavery in Egypt, and the Pharaoh who knew nothing about Joseph, who Joseph was someone who raised up in the kingdom of Egypt to a, a level position that allowed his family to come in. Now, were granted a lot of freedoms that other people wouldn't have been able to get because of just the good that he had done in Egypt, and Pharaoh had recognized that well. Depending on how you look at the historical context, it's either the Hyksos came to power or they fell out of power. And an Egyptian pharaoh came who knew nothing about him. So he saw all these Israelites who were not Egyptians and went, mm, yeah, I don't like them. So I'm going to enslave them. Did so, then realized that they kept growing in number, even in slavery. And so he wanted to kill all the newborn babes or of the men, excuse me, boys in this case, not caring about the girls, but the Hebrew midwives. And actually, I believe... Yeah, the midwives in the situation stopped that from happening because they knew it was wrong. They resisted the evil orders of Pharaoh because to do so would be a blight against God, would be an evil amount of, like, I can't even put into words just how evil it would be to murder all these babies so senselessly. So they lie. And they say, we can't do it in time. So the babies do get to live. And the weird thing is God blesses them not only for resisting, but also for this lie. So you go, we may have talked about this before, is that sense of, okay, when is lying acceptable? Is it ever acceptable or is it an absolute? You should never lie. Based on this scenario, there are situations in which one can lie for the sake of preserving life. It's that age-old question uh, for someone who's hiding a Jewish person uh, to uh, have them escape the Holocaust in their attic and you're asked by an SS officer, and you go, oh, well, do you have any Jews in your house? And you say, no. Well, the truth is you do. But if you tell the truth, they're as good as dead. But if you tell the lie, there's a chance they may live. I favor that. I favor for the sake of preserving life, that lie. Now, we should always be careful real quick before we get off track here. Like, when is that lie acceptable? Preserving life. I better make sure that when I am doing that, it is actually preserving life. And it's not preserving my ego or pride or anything like that. But the midwives were resisting the authority God, remember, had put Pharaoh in that spot himself. And yet we're told to submit. But at the same time, they didn't, and they're rewarded for it. So is God just like changing his mind on this? No, because as we'll see as time goes on with these other examples, it is more important to do God's will than to submit to the authorities if they themselves are not doing it. Next up, we're going to go to Esther 4, 10 through 17. This will be from the Good News Translation. And it says, And Esther gave him this message to take back to Mordecai. If anyone, man or woman, goes to the inner courtyard and sees the king without being summoned, that person must die. 
That is the law. Everyone from the king's advisors to the people in the provinces knows that. There is only one way to get around this law. If the king holds out his golden scepter to someone, that, then that person's life is spared. But it has been a month since the king sent for me. When Mordecai received Esther's message, he sent her this warning. Don't imagine that you are safer than any other Jew just because you are in the royal palace. If you keep quiet at a time like this, help will come from heaven to the Jews and they will be saved. But you will die and your father's family will come to an end. Yet who knows? Maybe it was for a time like this that you were made king. Excuse me, <laughs> queen. <laughs> Esther sent Mordecai this reply. Go and get all the Jews and Susa together. Hold a fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink anything for three days and three nights. My servant women and I will be doing the same. After that, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I must die for doing it, I will die. Mordecai then left and did everything Esther had told him to do. Now, context here. Esther has been made a queen of the Persian Empire under uh, Artaxerxes. We're fairly certain this is probably, you know, the OG Xerxes around this period of time. And she's living the high life to an extent compared to where she was. She was just this lowly little Jewish girl. And now she's in the king's inner harem. And unfortunately, there are people in the king's advisory panel including Haman, who want the Jewish people to be gone. They have grudges against him. Some people believe it's because Haman himself is a descendant of King Agag because he is called Haman the Agagite. And King Agag was an Amalekite king that Saul was supposed to kill and wipe out the Amalekite people because of what they did to the Jewish people when they were on their way to the promised land. That's a lot of backstory I had to go through there. Others don't know. He may simply have just had a grudge because of who Mordecai was and he just hated them. So that hate then transferred to the rest of Jewish people too. Esther is Jewish. The king seems to be unaware of this at this point in time. And she likely would survive this purge because it doesn't seem like anyone knows. But Mordecai, being the smarter person here, her cousin uh, or uncle, uncle, says, no, even if you're there, you're going to get hurt. So the right thing for you to do is to resist authority because the king has made a proclamation that the Jews are going to be attacked and pretty much wiped out on this specific day coming up. But it's impossible for her to do it from her point of view, because if the king doesn't want you there and you come in, he can rightfully kill you and no one can say anything because those are the rules. But she takes the time to resist the law, resist authority, resist Everything that would wipe out her people because it is the right thing to do, because she's being guided by God who rose her to that position for that time, for such a time as this, for her to be able to stop this genocide. So we see there's a way for her to do it, to resist. God put Xerxes up there. He put Haman in power too, knowing exactly what would happen. So once again, do you follow the government or do you resist? You've got to be careful. This is the time to resist when the government is acting evilly. Next up, we go to Daniel 3, verses 12 through 18. This is in the NIV. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? 
Now when you hear the, the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, I, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Context again here. Babylon has taken over Judah, which was the last surviving realm of where the Jewish people were at. They've been taken into exile into di distant lands. Uh, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego have all been taken as youths to be trained within the palace to serve various roles there, to be given an education. And King Nebuchadnezzar has been tricked and his pride kind of inflated a bit to make a golden image where and a proclamation once again made by the government that if you do not worship this statue at this specific time when these things happen, you're to be put to death because this is another trap set to cause the Jewish people who don't do it to be killed. But they don't. They refuse. And it's a beautiful moment here, too. They have that much faith in God that even if he doesn't save them, they're still going to do it. Nothing's going to stop them. Not even God not intervening on their behalf is going to stop them. That's true faith, people. And they resisted the government doing it because to follow the government would mean to abandon what God has said. That's when the contradiction dies. You can follow the government when the government is doing its job, when it's loving its people like God intends for them to do. But when they stop doing that, that's when the rebellion kicks in. Not necessarily armed conflict, but morally. Last up, out of these four, we have Acts 5, 27 through 32. And this is in the Christian Standard Bible. After they brought them in, uh, they, uh, them being all the apostles, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and a high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's where it is. There is no more argument after this point. Peter, who is the one speaking here, lays it out perfectly. We must obey God rather than people. When the people in charge pass laws that discriminate against the truth of the gospel, of the truth of the word, the truth of who God is, we don't listen. We don't give in. And this is, once again, this is not a call to everyone, all right, time to start your militias and all that stuff. No, 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 no. Don't hear that. This is, if a law is passed to allow evil to be done, thinking it's in the name of good or whatever the government says is good, and it contradicts scripture, we don't follow it. We resist. We, pass, we go to see what we can do to pass legislation to get it overturned. We don't participate in it ourselves and say, well, everyone else is doing it. We don't make hypocrites of ourselves because it's easier for us to follow these new laws rather than follow what God says. 
it wasn't easy for Peter and, and the other apostles to say no to the Sanhedrin. It'd be a lot easier if they said, look, uh, yeah, you're right, guys. Uh, we're kind of outnumbered here. We should probably give up. That'd be wrong. Completely and utterly wrong and easy. But the gospel isn't easy. We're not called to do the easy, easy thing most of the time. We're called to do the difficult thing. And that's resisting this. And anyone, I mean, anyone who brings up this point and says, well, this is clearly stated right here. We can never resist authority or the government or the rulers. Clearly never met Jesus. Because all the entire gospel story is Jesus spitting in the face of the Roman Empire, of the Jewish leadership, of the high priest. Everywhere is him saying, you are wrong. And I am going to continue living my life as if you are wrong because you are wrong. And you know what happened to him? They murdered him for it. As Peter rightfully states here, if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to be rebels in that sense. And Jesus, once again, he didn't start a violent revolution. Not to say that that can't be something you can do along the way. I mean, I am American after all. That's something that had to happen at, at a certain point in time because the British weren't going to listen to us. I'm not happy with all the death and devastation that happened afterward, but it got us to where we are now. But Jesus didn't do it then because that's not why he came here. Some people are called to different purposes there. Just be mindful of where Jesus has you placed, how he wants you to resist the government, how he wants you to follow the government. Because guess what? He still gave taxes. He gave up of his own money collected by the group and gave it back to the Roman Empire who had no authority over him. But as an example to us, he submitted in humbleness. Now, all this to say, the Bible agrees with itself completely, and there is no contradiction in Paul commanding the church at Rome and by proxy us to submit to the government, while also in Scripture we see that we have the right to resist evil when governments deliver it to the people instead of the good God desired them to give when he allowed them to hold office. God allows people to be in charge. He allows Biden to be in charge. He allowed Trump to be in charge. He allowed Obama and Bush and whatever president you don't like along the way. I mean, Buchanan, can't stand Buchanan. Worst president in history, in my, in my personal opinion. God allowed him to be in charge. God allowed Pharaoh to be in charge so he could be humbled and God's glory could be shown in the world. God allowed Hitler in charge. Let's just invoke Godwin's law. We don't like that. I don't like that. But he allowed it. And look what happened as a result of it. The Jewish people now have a home. After immense suffering and devastation and over almost 2,000 years of being away from home, they have one now. Looking back a bit, Paul does reiterate an earlier point he made in chapter 12, where we are not to be the ones to seek revenge for ourselves. Let's look through all these things like the apostles didn't firebomb the Sanhedrin's headquarters for imprisoning them, but instead they rejoiced that they were worthy of being persecuted by the Jewish leaders for their faith. Esther didn't assassinate Haman for trying to exterminate her people, but she did later on get to see him hung for his crimes because guess what? He needed to be hung. He was a danger not only to the Jewish people, but to the Persian Empire. And his evil needed to be paid by God in his own time for vengeance. God used people who knew nothing about him to bring justice once again. This is not saying that we never seek justice when we have been wrong. We should seek justice after we've been wrong. What this is saying is that we go through the proper channels first, and when, if this fails, then we can talk about more revolutionary actions, but we should always be mindful of our true motivations for seeking justice 
lest they reveal us to be prideful fools seeking revenge instead of God's vengeance. Last but certainly not least here, we get the taxes. Everyone's favorite topic. <laughs> taxes are a necessary part of any good government to have the money that should be going to help the people and the infrastructure of the nation for the benefit of all. That is how they're supposed to be used. Now, obviously, this doesn't always happen. This then doesn't mean that I get to say I never have to pay my taxes because the money taken from me, oh, it's going to be used for evil, so I should never be taxed. No. Uh, one, you and I don't know where that money's going. It could be used correctly or it could be used for evil. We should hold those in power responsible if it is used for ill, but never use it as an excuse to stop paying taxes. Two, we are commanded by God several times, like I said earlier, to render what is Caesar's to Caesar's and render what is God's to God's. To, to God. God expects us to be good citizens of both this world and the next. And part of that is following the just rules. It is just for a nation to ask for money from its citizens so stuff can get done. How else are they going to get the funding? Do you really want to be the people who go, oh, well, back in the day, you know how they really funded a lot of stuff? Uh, they went on campaign and lots of people died and they took the plunder and then they would use it for the people and for their own pockets. Because guess what? People are people. Stuff hasn't changed. People in charge, sometimes they use it for ill. That hasn't changed because people haven't changed that much. Just the names and the places and the time. Now, I in particular despise the idea of the income tax and wish it was repealed ASAP. I believe it's kind of wage theft from a governmental level. However, this then doesn't give me the justification to not pay that part of my taxes when the time comes. You know, if I were more politically active, you know, I could push for legislation to change, but I'm not, so I don't. And I pay my taxes correctly, even knowing there are plenty of people out there who are not. Our goal is not to compare and contrast who is doing their job and who isn't, but to show our faithfulness, which destroys the world's concepts of how the world actually works and marks us as righteous instead for doing what is right. We all good? Time to go into verses 8 through 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, to start here, Paul is not saying we should never borrow money, as he, in the preceding verse, before we read these, commanded us to pay what we owe. But instead is saying we should, if possible, not do it because it is better not to be in someone's debt, as love doesn't work that way. He uses love as an illustration here for money and owing someone money and borrowing money. Because if we truly love people, we're not going to hold it over them. I did this for you. Oh, it's time to do something for me. That's not how love works. Love instead 
doesn't work on a debt-based system, but in a sacrificial and unconditional system that holds no past doing of wrongs over someone's head, while also not forgetting the wrong that was done in the first place. Forgive and forget, once again, not a biblical principle. I dare you to find it. It's not there. Love, we find, is the true fulfillment of the law because love never causes harm to the people around you. It means we're not stealing from them, murdering them, or stealing their spouses because to do so means we don't love them fully. The gospel is summed up on the human side of things and a little bit of the God side of things in that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments Jesus brings up. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. There, there you go. There's the entire gospel. Mic drop. I don't have to say another word, oh, except I do, because then we have to understand what those verses mean, what those commandments mean. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I know how I want to be loved. I don't want someone to steal from me. I don't want to get murdered by someone. That's easy enough to understand. But a lot of the Bible is explaining the harder stuff. Well, how should I act as a man to a woman? How should I act to an adult as a, to a child? How should I act to my coworkers? How should I act to the people who hate me? How do I do these things? Well, the Bible tells me how. The answer is to love them and not enforce my view of what love is on them, but to help them understand the love that comes from Christ. Our job, as Paul rightfully states here, is to no longer be sleepers who were once lax in our morals and lazy and how we cared about others, but instead we are called to be awake and active in service to God by denying sin and working for the good of all as was shown to us by the way, Jesus acted while on this earth. There's no one better who lived it out. I mean, David didn't do it. Peter didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. John didn't do it. No one did it better. Not even Enoch and Elijah, who are probably the best of the best when it comes to humanity. Even David being called a man after God's own heart. We see a list of his many sins. And that Enoch and Elijah literally get taken away into heaven and didn't die a natural death. And they still weren't as good as Jesus. And they're never going to be. You want to know how to do things right? You look at him. Chapter 14, we'll be going through verses uh, 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since one who eats, excuse me, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to, to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's command here to not quarrel with the, the quote unquote weaker believer is intended to stop petty arguments from happening thanks to the quote unquote mature 
Christians who are convinced their way of doing things is right, and anyone who says otherwise is obviously a fool, especially when they look like a spiritual child compared to them who's been at this for longer, to those who's been at this for longer. Paul is not saying that we look past heresies that younger Christians in their ignorance talk about because they are still learning, but to less consequential things like diets, the movies they watch, the friends they hang out with, you know, so on and so forth. Those things don't matter as much. Now, if they've got some doctrinal issues, yes, that needs to be called out in a loving manner. But we don't say, oh, I don't like your friends, if those friends aren't being harmful, simply because they're not the people you would hang out with. And we see here, using the example of vegetarians versus those who eat meat or, or, pri- or excuse me, eat both of them or, pri- or blah, cannot speak today, prioritize meat, Paul is layering his argument in various ways. There's a couple ways the culture would have understood this versus how we do. There were some in the early church who, at this point in time, they just didn't want to eat food given to idols because it appeared like they were saying that's okay if I eat the food because they would be regularly sold in stalls outside of these temples after the offerings had been made, the sacrifices had been done. Well, the meat is cooked. Well, the priests are going to make a profit off of it. So in order to stop this from ever happening, they removed meat entirely from their diet so that there was not even a possibility that they could ever be seen as approving of this because it affected their conscience so much. There is some speculation as well that others probably wanted to follow the example of a great man like in Daniel, who denied the fattier foods of the Babylonian court so as not to live in excess and waste. And beyond this, there are plenty of people out there who don't want to eat meat because of their conscience, as they believe doing so is evil to the animal, and they don't want to harm life. Neither of these scenarios are inherently bad, but they're also not inherently right. Just as it is right for a Christian to eat meat primarily, so it is a right for a Christian to eat vegetables primarily or solely. Neither is wrong, neither is right. They simply are. That's Paul's point here. Now, personally, I can't stand most vegetables. And if I ever had to live in a world where that was all I could eat, I'd rather die and be with Jesus a little sooner than I planned. Like, that's me. I know I'm childish. I can't stand the taste or the texture of vegetables. So the certain ones, I want them gone. If they were erased from the world tomorrow, I'd be in a better place. I know a lot of people wouldn't, but thank God the world doesn't revolve around me. So you all can enjoy what you like. They'll just tell me that I have to do what you do. That's why I like this verse. Now, this view, this whole view isn't inherently wrong either to say that I can eat whatever I want. Now, within reason, I should specify there are bad parts of my diet and I need to be better about them. Like it's not inherently wrong. It's just as valid to those who go vegan or vegetarian or pescetarian or what have you, whatever else exists right now. Caveman, keto, wherever you're going. The point about all this is that this part doesn't matter when it comes to spiritual matters. What does matter is stuff like the true nature of the Trinity, whether or not Jesus was who he said he was, or whether it's okay to sin, or what else have you that are like, hey, we got to nail these suckers down. We can't let people be saying wrong things. That's where you got to step in, in love, and say, no, don't do that. These things are absolutes on how they should be understood and followed. It doesn't matter if a Christian enjoys horror movies and another doesn't, or if one Christian wants to decorate for veterans or Memorial Day and another doesn't because they think glorifying the military is wrong, neither of you is wrong. They're both right in that sense of it doesn't matter ultimately. They can do what they want. What matters is how we treat each other 
based on our differences just as much as our similarities. God, either way, has welcomed that person, man or woman, into his kingdom, and we should celebrate with them and guide them as best as we can in our human frailty. There is something to say, however, if a mature Christian notices that a newer Christian associating with something that in and of itself is not evil is still causing them to stumble, then something needs to be said for their sake. There's nothing inherently wrong with listening to heavy metal or punk rock or pop music, but if the words in those songs lead a weaker Christian to think it's okay to do some of the things sung about in them, then for a time, it is better for them to stop listening so that they can get their minds right. Or if a mature Christian sees that a younger one is spending too much time playing video games, obsessing over fashion, or staying away from the fellowship, then this, this needs to be brought up in a loving manner. Once again, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but it is wrong to use them to excess and to deny time with fellow Christians simply for the sake of staying away from them, rather than doing what I need to do sometimes and get away to recharge or just prepare for doing it. Sometimes I have to hype myself up. I have to talk to people. And that's okay. But then if I use that and say, oh, it's going to be too much for me. I got to stay away. Well, sometimes, yes. Other times, no, I'm just looking for an excuse not to do anything. And I need to be called out for that. We see, we see here that passing judgment on a weaker Christian simply because they do something that you don't like isn't acting in a Christ-like manner. Instead, it is a very egotistical way of demanding that reality and the people around you conform to what your idea of truth and following Jesus looks like which Paul rightfully condemns and brings up the fact that one day we will have to give an account of all we've done to God and acting in this manner is not a great way to make God happy. I mean, you're already going to get there if you're his, but you know, I don't know about you, but I want my list to be a lot shorter than it probably is going to end up being. I don't want to have to sit there and hear all that, but same thing. I'm going to be glorified. It's going to be great. I'm justified before him, but like hearing that list, it's going to hurt me because I've done a lot and hopefully I'm going to be around a lot longer. And I know that list is going to keep going, but it's still covered by his blood. Next up, uh, 13 through 23, and then we'll be done. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, in, is, me, is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Christians who enforce their personal views on others, not scriptural views, their personal views, Christian or not, are nothing but stumbling blocks to the gospel, and they do not show the love of Jesus to others. Younger Christians to the faith should be able to look up to those who've been at this longer than them 
and be able to learn from their example without having to totally rearrange their own lives just to become a carbon copy of the mature Christians they're learning from. Look, there are plenty of things that I myself feel personally convicted by that don't affect any of you in the same way or at all. I hold myself to a ridiculously high standard where I do everything in my power alongside his power to live my life out in a certain way. But along the road, I've had to learn that thinking I can enforce my standards on someone is folly because even I don't do it well enough to give myself a passing grade. If I had to do it every single day by my own standards, I fall short. And a good thing is I don't have to live totally by my own standards. I have to live by God's standards. And he's got me. And that's good. But there's still things we all do this. There are things we hold higher than others. I need to be better at this. I need to be more mindful about this. Those aren't inherently wrong. Just know that everyone else isn't beholden to the way that you view how your walk should be. They're on a separate walk, walking beside you, walking together, walking in a community, in a church, but they're not you, and they don't have to be. The world's better off that way. Now, outside of sin, nothing is unclean in this world. Food, entertainment, wine, fashion, and everything else in this world is not a sin itself. Excuse me, that is not, a, that is not sin itself are not unclean. Excuse me, they're not inherently unclean. It is always humans who turn something good into evil. Film and television are great ways to show the human condition and for us to have something to connect to. I just watched the the first episode of Loki earlier today. Had a tremendously fun time watching it. Ahsoka came earlier this week. I enjoyed the finale. It was a lot of fun. It's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination, but I got to see something enjoyable and have a good time. But... These same things can also turn easily into smut and pornography, which, but that only happens with human intervention. People pervert something that can be used for good. Like, who doesn't want to see a story of people rising up, finding someone they left behind, like we see in Ahsoka, like, and then bringing them back? Or to see, like, hey, what, what does it mean for me to be on my path in life in Loki right now? It's like, is it my path that I truly follow this or am I being controlled by someone else? What are my decisions my own? What does time have to do with all this? Like, it's great. It's a lot of fun. But people can easily pervert stuff like that and make it terrible. Food, likewise, is a wonderful gift from God. And guess what? It's required to survive. There's not a single person alive today who doesn't need food. But if I eat food to excess and become gluttonous, Oh, no. Did the Baptist just say that? The Baptist just absolutely said that. Gluttony is bad. Then I am staining food with my own sin. I am making food something that is inherently okay, is just a thing, and something that should be used for good into something evil because I am abusing the food. So how do we live this out, you ask? Well, a great way to start is to know who your neighbors are, both around your home and in the church. If you invite someone over for dinner, make sure you know what they like to eat. And what media they think it's okay to consume. This doesn't mean that we hide our horror films or or a song of ice and fire novels from them simply because they think they're they're filled with needless gore or violence. But it does mean we don't invite someone who's not comfortable around seeing blood and then inviting them to an evil dead marathon. Now, that's something that personally sounds like a lot of fun to me because I love those films. But to others who are more squeamish or sensitive, if I were to force them to watch it simply because I think it's okay, 
I am pushing them away from fellowship in God by acting in a haughty manner. The same would be true if I ordered a meat lover's pizza exclusively to serve and then invited the vegan member of the church to attend a Super Bowl party at my place. I have given them nothing to eat while watching a game that lasts for hours on end. I am being a terrible host, friend, and brother in Christ all at once, and they deserve better from me. Guess what? Just ask. Say, hey, I'm going to be having this, you know, uh, Tuesday night. Like, do you have any dietary concerns? Do you have any allergies? Is there anything you're like, hey, I don't want to be like, I'm not comfortable around that. Just ask. Guess what? Most people will appreciate that and tell you the truth. And then you don't get to say, oh, you don't like what I'm watching? Well, you're not going to be my friend. It's like, no. They just have separate interests there. Maybe you have others, but you just started with the wrong one. You don't know because you gave up after the first. Just know who the people are around you. Ask questions. Be understanding, not a pushover, but be understanding to accommodate their needs so that you can all fellowship and learn about who Jesus is better together. Now, our faith in God, uh, our faith and service in God comes in different forms. It is faithful for me to be able to talk to someone about, you know, the latest episode that's all of, let's say, Jujutsu Kaisen, or I just mentioned Loki, I'll mention that too again now, when I'm around people in the church or out of it, because it gives me something easy to start a conversation around that can also very easily be turned around to talk about Christ. It's like, hey, what do you think about this cursed energy in Jujutsu Kaisen? What do you think about, you know, Loki's uh, strange relationship with the people around them, the way he keeps backstabbing people? You know, is that something you think humans are all about? You know. You can easily lead that back to Christ and say, hey, this isn't how we should be acting. We should be doing this instead. It is also faithful for someone in the faith to say that watching such things makes them feel uncomfortable because they don't like the violence of anime or how they don't like how Loki is portrayed as sexually promiscuous and don't want to be seen as condoning either one of those things. That is a good feeling to have. It's not inherently right. It's not inherently wrong. Neither one is, neither one I had or the one they had. It's all about how we present ourselves when confronted with these things. Do not avoid or confront these issues simply to placate someone. Avoid or confront these issues because you love the other person and want to see them further their faith in God. And with that, we are done with Romans 13 and 14. Thank you, everyone, for continuing on in this journey. Please, if you have a chance, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help us with the ratings there. If you're interested in my own fictional, uh, fiction writing, you can find my works at StarvingWritersGuild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. Contact me at LetNothingMoveYouPodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.